Saints. And they got lucky, too. That's what really happened. They got lucky. All right, we're done here. Thank you very much for listening to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thank you very much to Daniel Thompson and Andrew Miller. Thank you for listening. My name is Nick Hornberg. Have a great day, everybody, and go blue. Unless they score six straight. Edmonds, the delivery, dig by Hamaker. Welsh back set. Caleb Air on the slide. Kept alive by Poljan. Smith, the dig. Welsh, dump set. And kept alive and joust at the net. Won by Sydney Wetterstrom. Michigan wins set five and the game. Sydney Wetterstrom flushing away an overpass. How appropriate. Sydney Wetterstrom had the strongest spring of any Michigan player and closes Michigan's spring schedule, putting Michigan State to bed in five. By a score of 15 to eight, Michigan wins three sets to two and closes their spring schedule without losing a single game. Well, well, uh, good evening. Uh, It is uh, spring indeed here in Ann Arbor, a little nippy today, but welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. I am still wearing short pants all the same despite the little bit cold weather. It is spring in Michigan. I'm Jim Dwyer. Well, I had them on yesterday and the day before <laughs> but uh after the walk through our lovely it's the city. welshman in me yeah the lovely city of ann arbor seemed uh kind of cool out there but you know what the all this uh, rain we've had the last couple of weeks is very good for uh, uh the flowers the trees the trees are digging it april showers that's you know that's one yeah. of those old old sayings that's not no idle saying and i've even seen two little Red-billed wood, woodpeckers in the last week, so uh, the birds are back making noise. That's great, and uh, there's always something nice about early spring. Of course, uh, spring has been ruined again by President Trump. Uh, we'll give out, uh, talk about a couple of international things. Well, and of course, uh, another shooting incident. Oh, in oh America. yeah. Well. <laughs> Shooting of the week. I think right, we're, yeah, we're going to so. reach a point where we are uh, having an anniversary almost every day of the year. It's rather pathetic. Uh, nothing happens. Nothing will happen. And, of course, let's give Donald Trump a brain damage award for going to the NRA convention and throwing around a bunch of nonsense, red meat, and all kinds of other gibberish while he keeps the prime minister of Japan Waiting in Washington. Uh, you know, well, he didn't bring him along for, come on into the big tent of the NRA and enjoy the echo, echo, echo in the room, room, room. Well, and Abe is uh, kind of an interesting, in, in a sort of an interesting uh, stage in Japanese history. Um, I'm not an expert on Japan. Uh, don't profess to be. Uh, but it is interesting that the emperor is uh, abdicating tomorrow. Uh, Akihito, I think is his name, son of Hirohito, the emperor of Japan during uh, the Second World War. And as emperors go, this guy was pretty cool. He was a pacifist. He was a big adherent to Japan's Article 9 component of the American written constitution. And he's been sort of battling this kind of weird right-wing movement in Japanese politics, Abe is sort of a peripheral member of this uh, movement in which Japan is trying to become 
uh, better armed and more aggressive in well, East Asia. Yeah, and of there course, is a- Korea's been in the news all week because Kim Jong-un... Took that train to Georgia Took yet that train again. To Georgia, and now there's photos in Tiger Beat magazine of Kim Jong Un holding hands with Putsi. Yeah, and Putin uh, is backing Kim's position on uh, on uh, <clears throat> denuclearizing the peninsula of Korea. Um, so it's interesting that both Putin and Kim have sort of sent Donald Trump a message: "Eat my dust." Don't you want to be having fun with us? So, a room for three. And there's a lot of weird connections still between North Korea and Russia. There are rumors that there are up to... And I suspect Donald Trump and Russia, too. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, rumors that there are, uh, you know, somewhere between ten and 40,000 North Korean laborers that are... Uh, <clears throat> I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. <laughs> They're working the forests of Siberia where, uh, well, we got another uh, bad report about deforestation uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, global deforestation. And some of the uh, biggest areas of the world now that are being uh, chopped down are in Russia. Uh, this lumber is going to China, by the way. Not to Kim Jong-un. Not to the beach bungalows that... Donald Trump wants to build. Well, you know, uh, I wonder. There was that story last week in uh, Friday's uh, New York Times. North Korea gave United States a medical bill for the student that they slow motion tortured to death. Remember uh, the poor young man who has been referred to by the president as our wonder, our lovely Otto, Otto Warmbier. Warmbier. Apparently, the uh, North Koreans uh, said, well, here's the bill for the medical treatment that he uh, enjoyed slash suffered while here. And uh, apparently there's some question as to whether in some way uh, Trump paid that. Well, he apparently gave orders to do so. Uh, He, of course, like Ronald Reagan back in 1986, has denied paying arms for hostages. Uh, So who knows? But uh, the strange components of North Korea's regime uh, never cease to amaze me. Uh, It was confirmed, by the way, that the North Koreans sent America a bill for shooting down one of our pilots. Uh, Bill Richardson, an envoy, a special envoy who frequently uh, engaged North Korea uh, over the decades, said that they used to submit a bill for the bullets for the NAI air crew. We had to spend money on bullets to shoot your plane down. You owe us this. You owe us that. So uh, any regime where uh, Kim's father used to allegedly watch Daffy Duck cartoons all day. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a neighborhood shakedown uh, sort of approach to economic policy. Of course, the president uh, watches... uh, the Golf Channel all day and Fox News while he is on executive time. Uh, the m- mysteries of executive time continue to intrigue. Um, but uh, just real quickly, getting back to the Japanese uh, uh, situation uh, with the abdication, um, 
this is a this hasn't happened in I don't know 200 300 years uh normally the emperor is supposed to kind of die in office and it's uh important to remember that Hirohito uh, Akahito's father <clears throat> was at the heart of the negotiations that were going on at the end of World War II mm. Uh, the United States at Casablanca uh, during the Second World War, when Roosevelt and Churchill met, issued a uh, statement, a communique, talking about unconditional surrender. Uh, this, of course, was <clears throat> a demand made of the Axis powers. Japan was in an alliance with Germany. But interestingly, had signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. So technically, Stalin had to declare war on Japan towards the end. But anyway, in the sort of cumbersome negotiations that went on in '45, when it was quite clear that the Allies were going to prevail, and that it was just a matter of time uh, following D-Day and following the Red Army offensive in the east— as to when Berlin was going to fall, the Japanese uh, were holding out for the preservation of the emperor. And America's negotiating... As the one element of unconditional surrender that culturally was a hard sell. That's right. And they demanded that the um, <clears throat> emperor be retained. And it's now emerged uh, through a document... Uh, releases, many of which have been kept secret for for decades, that America had secretly agreed to that. Mm. But their position was, we won't agree to it until you surrender, which they did. I recall that my uh, history professor, Sidney Fine, who was on the USS Missouri when Japan actually surrendered to Douglas MacArthur, uh, was uh, <clears throat> impressed by the fact that Thousands of Japanese actually bowed down to MacArthur as the conquering hero, so to speak. He he, no doubt dug that too. He dug that. <laughs> he might have been one of the few guys in American history whose ego is even bigger <laughs> right. than, bigger than Trump's. Um, so that's always been a fascinating detail of history amidst the debate about the. Uh, the use of the atomic bomb at the end of World War II. Sort of the rush to do so. The rush to do so. The trickiness with the date. Um, Russia had, uh, Stalin had pledged to join the Japanese war three months after VE Day. That would have fallen on the 8th of uh, August. We dropped the bomb on Hiroshima on the 6th, hoping Japan would surrender uh, they did not, and Stalin actually did declare war mm -hmm. on Japan on the 8th of May and sent in a million Red Army troops into uh, Manchuria, which, of course, was a part of China that was occupied by Japan, uh, dating back to 1931. Some historians have pointed out that really the beginning of the Second World War was 1931. We in the West like to believe that it started either on Pearl Harbor Day, uh, January 7th, 41, or on September 1st, 
39 when, when uh, Germany invades Poland. When Germany invaded Poland. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see how the tradition of Akihito is uh, pursued by his son and the whole problem with the Japanese emperor system, the male heir. They've been having some problems along those lines that uh, <clears throat> I guess you can say resemble Henry VIII. <laughs> so we well, will they can see. consult with the British monarchy for all sorts of tips. I'm not a big fan of monarchy, <clears throat> but I do respect the fact that uh, a culture such as Japan is quite different than ours. And uh, I think that the State Department experts who uh, recommended that uh, the emperor be retained on the grounds of kind of maintaining order uh, were, in retrospect, probably correct, that it was a, probably the right move for the United States to accept the emperor, because let's face it, he is a figurehead at some level. But it, within Jap Japanese society, he's regarded as a kind of a deity and uh, quite different than some of the figureheads uh, in, in Europe, for instance. And I'm thinking here, I guess I'll transition into Spain. Very interesting mm. uh, elections happened, uh, well, literally yesterday. Uh, because the far-right party did gain some seats, but they took those seats at the expense of uh, Rajoy's uh, uh, conservative party, and the big winners really were the leftists. So right-wing politics went down. Nationalism has gone up a little bit in Spain. But over this past week, I did see an interesting documentary about Steve Bannon, Who's uh, <clears throat> working with hobnobbing with those European right wingers? You got it, and you know there's they actually film a lot of the dinners and the conversations that they're having about their main obsession with immigration and well, I think that's sovereignty. Part of, yep. part of the reason for his hostility towards the uh, the current pope is uh, that pope's uh, openness to uh, immigrants and refugees. Yeah, because he's uh, condemned. Uh, America's immigration policies, the current ones, uh, regarding the border that look like they're not going to be resolved anytime soon. And uh, just a bevy of defeats for Trump last week in court uh, here in the United States. Sometimes we overlook these uh, um, aspects of our system. Uh, as interesting as any was the fact that the K Kansas State Supreme Court struck down a restrictive abortion law that had been rammed through uh, the Kansas legislature by Sam Brownback, uh, a man obsessed by abortion. And uh, most of these abortion uh, rulings keep uh, protecting uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, another ruling in Oregon that I don't remember all of the details, but... Uh, Indicative of the fact that we do have uh, a separation of powers, that we do have diffused powers, and one has to wonder if Donald Trump is going to respect congressional subpoenas and the impeachment process 
and all of that? Well, yeah, there's a whole host of questions involving, uh, in fact, uh, as I was leaving the house to come down, breaking news that Rod Rosenstein has uh, tendered his resignation, which is no surprise. The surprise to me regarding him was, why did he look so strange standing behind Bill the Toolbag Bar during the I'm about to release the report press conference, if we can call whatever that was a press conference? Um, Rosenstein looked singularly candle-like. I mean, just very weird in all of that. But uh, you have to wonder if Barr's hesitancy to appear before uh, the um, uh, Nadler's committee on Thursday and have to face potentially questions from lawyers is that he knows he has no leg to stand upon legally for the incredible and grotesque misrepresentations that his uh, attempts at summary uh, have proven themselves to be. Well, and it's interesting if you go back and you check the Watergate articles of impeachment, Article 3 specifically dealt with uh, uh, refusing to answer subpoenas. Uh, This falls under this weird rubric of executive privilege, which is still a sort of unformed concept of constitutional law where we've never really had precise answers. We do know, of course, that the U.S. Constitution was founded on British uh, common law regarding the power of the presidency. And it's interesting that Warren Berger, I went back and checked my constitutional uh, law book in which Warren Berger wrote the U.S. versus Nixon case. Ah, uh, yeah. The tapes. <laughs> um, and whether or not this evidence had to be turned over. And they argued that it did. Uh, eight to zero. They argued that the president may not impede a judicial uh, proceeding. Well, the Constitution is very clear in the separation of powers is that Congress has oversight capacity and how bizarre that's that's that's, that's right there that today today's new york times 28 across is peter blank impeachment uh uh head of the judiciary committee of course the answer is rodino uh the house of representatives did begin investigating impeachment in may of 73 the process went on for over a year, um, Rodino moved slowly and deliberately. They had numerous hearings from historians and constitutional uh, scholars about the impeachment concept and how it emanated and how it was created. And we've heard this big thing for the last 20 years, 30 years, since Scalia came onto the court about originalism. Oh. You know, what What do the words originally say? And um, we're going to get, this is going to be tested here. One of the footnotes in the Berger report notes that George Mason <clears throat> objected to the impeachment clause with the language limited to treason and bribery as too narrow. He moved to add maladministration. Uh, James Madison objected to that as, quote, so vague uh that it would uh that he wanted the word 
um, changed. So Mason and Madison withdrew the word maladministration and successfully substituted high crimes and misdemeanors. And that this high crimes concept was about the abuse of power, uh, that the executive may not abuse his position uh, with respect to faithfully executing the laws, uh, may not abuse his position as far as the administration of justice. So when Donald Trump, who bizarrely keeps attacking Mueller, <laughs> well, <laughs> claiming that the report totally exonerates me, <laughs> It's uh, it is a puzzler. It's, it's a head scratcher. It's like okay, <laughs> whatever you say there. Why don't God. you take your little victory dance and go home with your football? Don't forget your Flintstones chewables. There. You know, like you know, they keep saying we want to move on. Well, Trump will never move on. Uh, he's still obsessed by the results of the 2016 election. And my advice to the Democrats is simple. Drop the Russian component. In other words, Mueller's got two volumes. Volume one has a lot of redactions. Well, the element of the, I mean, on one level, you, I agree. You're, you're right about it's the obstruction is, yeah. is where Trump is the most vulnerable, clearly. But I think there's a problem in just saying, well, Let's not worry about volume one of the Mueller report because it shows categorically that Russia's heavy hand was well in play. And there were stories last week that uh, now out uh, of the loop, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen was told, uh, don't talk to the president about uh, enhanced uh, election security for 2020 because that's just going to make him mad. Because any reference to Russian involvement, which Mueller Report Part 1 says, yep, it's a thing. It happened. Here's how it happened. Here's the different ways it happened. Here's all the evidence uh, that his ego is so fragile that to even acknowledge mm -hmm. that, well, yep, yep, analytically, it's all right there, uh, is like, oh, no, that means that I didn't really win. I'm a loser. Which, I'm going to get very angry. I mean, and of course, that's a big deal. The, yeah. the, the Congress has to do something uh, about uh, enhancing security for upcoming elections. Even primary elections are vulnerable. Well, and the the Mueller report details that they broke into a uh, county uh, voting system. The Russians, that is, in vote, Florida, in yeah. Florida, and of course, Florida would obviously be a toss-up swing state. Anybody in the world knows that Florida is a goofy state for elections, so that was probably like, let's do Florida first. That's easy That's to do because um, they have. I hate to say this, a hodgepodge of uh, of counties in Florida. Uh, it's very strange to me, for instance, how big Broward County is. It's it's enormous, mm. and the election uh, situation in Broward County is always. Uh, screwed up because of the size you know india has been having an election for four weeks because they have 900 million voters a couple of different languages i mean can you imagine yeah. <laughs> that's like eight times the number of voters that the united states has and we have the most ridiculous elections in the world you know they they go on for they really literally almost start the day after the 
midterm elections yeah. are done or the presidential elections are done. And, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Mr. Uh, Barr, at his pre-press conference before releasing the report, sort of excused Donald Trump's uh, obstruction of justice as, well, he was very angry. He was very upset. <laughs> like, what does that have to do with his repeated efforts to fire Mueller uh, with the idiotic justification that, well, he didn't actually succeed. His subordinates, unlike uh, the Watergate, uh, all the president's men, um, didn't carry out his orders on occasion, <laughs> uh, which raises some questions about the effectiveness of Donald Trump. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> you know, last week I mentioned that I found it utterly bizarre that uh, the obituary of James McCord was oh, right. published on the 20th of April. Even though he had passed some months ago. Some months ago. It's a fascinating obituary because it reports that it's sort of become official. It goes into some of the controversies about the announcement of his death itself. But I wanted to uh, explain why James McCord is so important in the history of Watergate. On the 23rd, and I'm reading here from all the president's men, I find this uh, passage amusing. Woodward was walking down a corridor near the uh, editorial pages offices of the Washington Post when he ran into Herblock, the Post cartoonist, who said, Hey, did you hear about McCord's letter to the judge? I heard it on the radio. <laughs> that was the last time somebody had brought him news of Watergate from the radio, Woodward thought. McCord's letter, uh, <clears throat> which he wrote to Judge Sirica, he was the judge hearing the actual burglary by the uh, Watergate bunglers, the bungling burglary. <laughs> they ought to make a cartoon out of those guys. Um, <clears throat> McCord wrote, Several members of my family have expressed fear for my life if I disclose knowledge of the facts in this matter, in the interest of justice, of restoring faith in the criminal justice system, James McCord was coming forward to tell what he knew. Woodward studied the letter's charges. Political pressure had been applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent. Perjury had occurred during the trial. Others involved in Watergate were not identified in testimony. So here Sirica is basically told of the cover-up by one of the participants. And we seem to have many of these elements here. It goes into the discussion, by the way, of hush money. Stormy Daniels, anybody? Individual number one is uh, in that game. Individual number one, a.k.a. David Dennison president of the United States. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I think the Democrats can kind of take volume one and sort of set it aside is that many of the, quote, redactions are uh, supposedly about ongoing criminal matters. At least one of which is Roger Stone. He's been named uh, specifically, but there are 12 others. Yeah. And you wonder... About Jared Kushner, 
Don Jr. Um, Robert Mueller was supposedly investigating the role that Gulf states played mm -hmm. in uh, funding uh, the Trump inaugural and possibly campaign. Uh, Jared Kushner gave us an interview last week in which he claimed that Facebook, what, sold a couple of ads? Yeah, he, he basically equated the uh, Russian efforts to uh, interfere with the election and, and the wide range of criminal activities that that involved. He, he sort of dismissed it with a, oh, whatever. Uh, it's just a couple of ads on Facebook. Quite honestly, he went on. The Mueller report is a bigger distraction and more hurtful to the country than than what Russia did. Yeah, and he said, "Wow, you know, Russia bought a couple of ads." Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, Russia, in fact, um, threw out uh, Facebook exposure to 126 million Americans. Twitter, seven million Americans. This is documented in the Mueller uh, report in the fine print. And by journalists, by the way, this is this is part of the ongoing problem that Donald Trump has here. Uh, we saw, of course, last week uh, other new revelations. <laughs> they keep coming, uh, including the Nielsen right stuff. Uh, Michael Cohen. Well, what was his role exactly in all of this? So these ongoing investigations, I think the Democrats can simply say, we will allow the judicial system to work. We won't pursue volume one. But by golly, volume two, we're interested in those problems. We're interested in attempts to obstruct justice and coaching witnesses. This is another very key aspect of Donald Trump's obstruction. We are told last week that when... The FBI raided Michael Cohen's office. Trump called him immediately, like that night, and told him to stay strong. Okay, well, I'm sure Michael Cohen was working out with weights. And Don't you think calls uh, to Michael Cohen are monitored at that point? I mean... You'd think so. <laughs> I think somebody's like, oh, this is an interesting call. So when Cohen says, oh, well, you know, with Trump, it, you know, it, he talked in code. You know, he didn't have to tell me to lie. He was talking in code. Some of which is you ju he just says the lie and then, oh, I get it. That's the story we're going with. And, you know, it, curious minds want to know about uh, Donald Trump. Is he more like Michael Corleone or Fredo? <laughs> We we want to know more. Uh, I'm getting a big Fredo whiff. I gotta say, Fredo is is on the horizon. But if you'll notice, the FBI raided uh, the mayor of Baltimore's uh, home. Uh, she's in some parochial uh, political scandal. She's the mayor of Baltimore, who's apparently up to some mischief with some money involving children's books. We don't know what that's all about. But I don't remember Donald Trump calling the mayor of Baltimore to tell her to stay strong. So here we have the president obviously trying to almost signal to witnesses, including Paul Manafort, you know, repeatedly. Good guy. Getting a bum rap, you know, commenting constantly. 
flipping should be against the law. Flipping should be against the law. You know, the, the kind of gangster mentality that Trump has, um, 